Welcome back to the Energy Today podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Roos, and let's get into it. So in today's show, I want to take a look at the price of oil like we always do, um, kind of where that's looking like it's going, um, some reasons behind that. And then I want to talk about what's going on in China and some of their energy policies. So oil is currently kind of hovering around $60 per barrel. It's actually at 59 and a half, I believe, right now. I mean, that gauge that we're looking at is WTI, West Texas Intermediate, which is actually the U.S. main gauge for crude coming out of uh, Cushing, Oklahoma. Um, So kind of where that's sitting at relative to the past few months, it almost got to $70 per barrel until, like I touched on last episode, a lot of optimism kind of came off the table. We saw more um, lockdowns and vaccine rollouts, Um, and obviously it's going to have an effect on where people think that oil is heading. I do think that this price is pretty what I would imagine we should be at right now, just considering all the news from OPEC and inventories and, quote, return to normal. I hate saying that word. (laughs) Everyone always says it. Um, But yeah, so then taking a look at some of the drivers of that. So we have uh, crude inventory. So basically how much crude is sitting in stockpiles across the U.S. Um, And first at crude imports, so what we're kind of taking in from other companies, uh, other countries, um, those are sitting at 5% less over the past four weeks compared to the same four weeks last year. And again, remember the same four weeks last year was right when the pandemic really hit the fan. Um, so definitely keep in mind that comparisons to a year ago aren't exactly um, apples to apples, I suppose. So crude inventories, on the other hand, are at 498.3 million barrels. Uh, and this is sitting roughly 3% above the five-year average for this time of year. So that's a better comparison because five-year average as opposed to just last year, um, which isn't necessarily detrimental. I mean, I know from supply demand, more supply, same demand means that the price is going to go down. Um, That's roughly what we've seen. It's really kind of fluctuating around $59 per barrel. Um, So really nothing too crazy um, coming out of that. But if you look at the week before on the last episode, Um, inventories were at 6% above um, the five-year average. So we're kind of going back and forth. It's kind of this seesaw effect that we see in oil markets where maybe there's some more demand here, so we're going to import more. Um, And that's kind of the storyline there. Um, And thinking about developments out of OPEC, I imagine that these things are going to continue as inventories as they always do continue to change, you know, relative to that five year average. So now taking a focus over on the rig counts. So basically the rig counts tells us how much, um, how many oil wells have been drilled and are producing over, over the past week. Um, so more increase in rig counts mean, mean maybe optimism regarding the oil space and also optimism on where oil is heading. Cause no one's going to reasonably drill and put, put dollars into the ground if they don't think that they're going to get a fair price for whatever they're producing. Um, so for the weekend at April 9th, uh, those recounts are sitting at 432. Um, it's actually plus two from the week before. And, and then on the last episode, it was actually plus six or seven, I believe. Um, still down 170 from, from a year ago, that same week a year ago. But like I mentioned earlier, April 2020 was an awful month for the oil market. I mean, we saw oil features actually hit negative territory um, for the first time ever. Um, which is actually pretty interesting. There's a lot of YouTube videos about that on on why that happened. Um, It's basically, you know, 
there wasn't any place to store the oil. And as those futures contracts hit, um, people just needed to get it off their hands. And that's why you had tons of, of ships just sitting in, in the waters, um, holding on to the oil during that time. And, the, you know, pipelines were filled. Cushing, Cushing was getting filled, all of those things. And Cushing is basically this huge uh, storage trading hub uh, up in Oklahoma. And there's a history on why it's at Cushing, Oklahoma. It seems kind of random, um, but definitely check that out if you're interested. Um, the bulk of that plus two increase, you know, went from 430 to 432, came out of Utah, Oklahoma, and Ohio. So tons of deposits uh, in, in all of those places. So not really a surprise there, but there was none coming out of the Permian, um, Permian Basin, major, major um, uh, oil reserve over in, in uh, West Texas and then also New Mexico. And it's really whenever people talk about reserves in the U.S., it, I'll instantly think of the Permian, especially if you're not very familiar with other um, reserves, reserves all over the U.S., but that's the kind of the main one that you think of. And because there wasn't any increase or, or, or even decrease there, I was actually pretty surprised at that. And I think it's like a hitting a pause button or some hesitancy in the market. Um, as we saw a bunch come online last week, and now that oil price has really been pretty flat. I mean, we've stayed at like $59, $60 for some time now. I think because of that, there's not really a big rush. We're almost in a wait and see mode as, as OPEC kind of figure things out, uh, figures things out over there um, in the Middle East. So um, again, be aware of those of those year ago comparisons. Um, things look rosier than they might they might be. So something to keep in mind there. So I always talk about OPEC on the show. Um, and you can't talk about the U.S. oil industry and kind of what's going on without discussing what's going over there, gone going on over there uh, with OPEC. So um, they decided to. If you didn't listen to the last episode, basically all I talked about was how they decided to roll back their cuts through the month of July. Pretty substantial amount of oil that they're going to be putting on back onto the market. And it reflects a couple of things. It reflects optimism about where things are heading because no one's, again, going to sell something that they don't think that they're going to get a good price for. Um, and why that was the change in tune from the week before where they didn't want to roll back those cuts. Um, one thing that I didn't mention was that OPEC has changed the selling price of their crew. Um, and typically in the U.S., whatever WTI is at, that's what you sell it at. But because so many things are nationalized in OPEC and more specifically in Saudi Arabia, they can really do that. So the crude that they sell to U.S. and EU companies and countries has actually been lowered by 20 cents and 10 cents respectively. So 20 cents for the U.S., 10 cents for EU. Um, and f as far as India and Asia, they actually raised it by... 40 cents. Um, and it might not seem like much, but think about whenever the price of, of your gasoline that you get at your gas station goes up by 40 cents and you multiply that across however many gallons you have in your tank. And it actually adds up to be quite a bit. Um, and when thinking through the volumes that these countries are, are buying and selling to each other, it's massive. I mean, there's millions of barrels multiplying that across 40 cents. Um, it's quite a bit. So there's been some geopolitical tensions kind of coming between Saudi Arabia and China, which is not a good thing, I would say. I mean, you got you got one of the world's or the world's largest crude producer over on the Saudi side and the world's second largest economy, um, massive consumer of petroleum products kind of going back and forth. 
Um, and I'd imagine that on the Chinese side, as they've been really assertive in basically everything that they've been doing, um, I mean, you can't turn on the news and, and not see something that China is doing that's trying to, I guess, outstep or, or make themselves better than other countries. Um, and because of that, I wonder what's going to happen. Um, as We'll get into it later, but I wonder what, what they're going to do with this new contract that they have with or deal contract with Iran, actually, where they are securing fuel supplies for something like 40, 50 years um, in return for investing in Iran. And for those that don't know, there's a big talk going on with or sort of going on with the U.S. and Iran over the nuclear agreement that President Trump actually pulled out of. And it's one of those things where, again, we're pulling out of the Middle East, the U.S. is, and then China is wanting to step in. But remember, Iran um, is a part of OPEC and Saudi Arabia and raising prices on them. How is that going to, what's that dynamic like within the ranks of OPEC? And I don't know. That's the million dollar question. Um, and with China making that deal, um, it'll be interesting to see how the peace in OPEC looks like, because we've seen a lot of peace lately, at least from the outside looking in. I mean, we've had general consensus on where they're do what they're where they're heading. I mean, two weeks ago, no no changing cuts. Last week, a big changing cuts, and it was you know OPEC wide. It wasn't one country just decided decided to do this, and whenever that happens, like what happened with the price war back in April of 2020, that ultimately caused prices to go negative. Whenever there's a price war between Russia. Um, which is right over there by China and Saudi Arabia, things kind of hit the fan. I mean, obviously that manifested in, in prices hitting negative, but I mean, the, the the energy industry, for better or for worse, is completely tied to the price of oil. Um, so those price wars and those discrepancies and, and issues within OPEC are really not good for anybody. And it's it's really who loses the least is who wins those, kind of, those kinds of... Um, those kinds of uh, arguments, I would say. So all in all, talk, talk about it all day. Um, but the pandemic and, and how much demand will ultimately bounce back is, is really the focus. I mean, we can go back and forth on what we think OPEC's going to do and what they're not going to do and what China's doing with Iran. But ultimately, the Achilles heel outside of oil price of the energy industry is returning demand and how much that's going to even change after the pandemic because now like you know like me and you we've for all college students i mean we're home a lot more we're not driving as much we're certainly not flying as much and the multiple that across the world and specifically the u.s and how much business travel probably will never come back i mean gone are the days where someone's going to fly to new york get a 400 hundred dollar hotel expense a bunch of a bunch of meals um, to go to a 30 40 minute hour long uh, meeting and then head back I mean that's just not gonna happen anymore now you can just get a zoom link hop on real quick you could be in your bed uh, and answer that and that's just not really gonna change but I wonder as, as far as like leisure travel goes and what the cruise line industry looks like I know there's a lot a lot happening um, in the courts with cruise lines um, in, in certain states and spe- specifically the U.S. And, and one important part there is that we've seen oil and gas shippers. So those big giant, you know, I, I live pretty close to the Gulf. So those big giant container, you know, uh, oil haulers, whatever you want to call them. Um, there, There's kind of a push there to make those more uh, carbon neutral or, or more climate friendly. But 
cruise liners still consume fossil fuels to, to travel. So I wonder if that might be another another front on, on the energy transition, on the so-called energy transition. So went on a little bit of a rant there, but hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, I, I want to now shift gears a little bit, like I mentioned earlier, to what's kind of happening out of China. And as this is an energy podcast, energy show, I want to talk about their energy policies. So China, um, we all know, big, massive, second biggest uh, economy in the world, massive population, all of those things, um, has joined the so-called bandwagon to, um, bandwagon, not, not a negative connotation there, um, to pledge net zero um, by 2060, actually. So net zero basically means that whatever they pollute, they're going to offset that either with carbon credits, um, which I talked about a couple of episodes ago, uh, planting trees, doing all these things, investing in renewables to hopefully net their emissions to zero. So they really wouldn't be doing worse, but they wouldn't be doing better for the environment. Um, and China, again, is assertive as the name of the game for them. They've been for years and years and years trying to make themselves known and make themselves more of a front on the, on the global stage. And what better country to pick that fight with than the world number one, um, the U.S. So another leg of this is being established on the climate front. You have them pledging net zero by 2060. There's all kinds of, you know, external pledges of the U.S. to do this and that by this certain date. Um, and with that being the case, we've seen a lot of things come out of the Biden administration that are really matching that in lockstep. I mean, it's no secret that things between China and the U.S. are not uh, super rosy. Um, And looking at something that Biden has done, um, he actually, the big talk right now is the new $2.9 trillion, um, which is again, $2 trillion, like that trillion dollars. I couldn't even get my my mind around that. Um, But he's proposed a increase in corporate taxes for to fund this $2.9 trillion um, deal legislation. Um, and it makes me wonder on why we have to raise corporate taxes because we just passed a $1.9 trillion, um, economic stimulus plan that again, did not raise corporate taxes. We just kind of printed money over at the fed, didn't have to raise taxes, but I'm not going to make a, not going to make a point there. Not my hill or sore sword to die on. Um, but one thing that I thought was interesting is that they proposed a minimum 15% tax they, as in the Biden administration, propose a minimum 15% tax on $2 billion um, per year earning companies. So the net income, the money they make is $2 billion or more. Um, so they're going to additionally add that tax onto them. Um, and what they'll get in return um, is some tax credits for pushing them towards doing renewable research, uh, infrastructure, all of those things. Um, so interesting way to use the tax policy um, IRS policy to encourage companies to invest in, in research into those things. And it's kind of like the Wild West as far as that goes. So how much gets put into renewable research and how much comes to actual fruition at some point, um, we'll definitely, we'll have to wait to see on that. And then, like I mentioned in that $2 trillion, $2.9 trillion plan, $156 billion is going towards renewables, which I'm not going to make an opinion on on exactly how much I think should go towards renewables in that bill, 
But if it's so big and if that's such a such an issue that we're seeing and that's such an issue that um, the Biden administration wants, you would think there'd be more than 156 billion. Again, massive number, um, but you would just imagine a little bit more there. Um, and reason why I covered all that is just because there's a lot coming out of China that's sort of similar in regards to it. And China is a much more nationalized co- uh, country where things kind of get set at the top and they just kinda, they just happen. Um, so there's not really, you know, we're not seeing like a bill come out that's being debated in Congress. They just say something and it happens. Um, but one important thing to note here that I think is often swept under the rug um, is that China is incredibly reliant on coal power. Um, you know, back whenever uh, President Trump introduced uh, some ideas to increase uh, coal consumption to help out coal companies, I mean, there was outcries everywhere. I mean, they thought they were, they were going to, you know, kill the environment um, there. But what we don't ref- what we don't remember is that China is still really dependent on coal. I mean, everyone knows that coal is one of the dirtiest, um, you know, greenhouse gas energy sources we can use in the world. Um, they're still heavily reliant on that. And last year, actually, 2020, um, so, you know, a few months ago, China actually commissioned the most coal plants by output than anyone in the world, any country in the world. And it wasn't even close, number two. I think the number two might have been the U.S., but it still wasn't even close. Um, and by default of that, they're going to continue to consume that coal uh, and utilize it. Um, so thinking through how we're going how China is going to get to net zero by 2060 will certainly be a stretch. Um and like I mentioned, things just kind of happen in China. So China's central focus at this point in, in its history um, is security, one, and then economy. I'm sure they're you know, equally weighted. Uh, but they're not really focused on climate change. That isn't like a big um, central fo- uh, focal point for uh, Beijing and, and President Xi Jinping. Um, and they have made some very big leaps over in nuclear power and solar and wind power. Um, but they're still dependent on other, uh, quote, fossil fuel sources. Um, so this past week or so, Beijing actually blacklisted Australia. And this is kind of the point of me talking about this. They actually blacklisted Australia um, and its coal. Like so They're not going to import any more coal from Australia. Um, and because of this, it actually caused multiple cities, entire cities, to go dark in China. Um, and CNBC reported, quote, relations between the two nations soured last year after Australia supported an international inquiry into China's handling over the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, it's a fair it's a fair inquiry to make. Um, I, I saw that they sent some somebody, the World Health Organization, sent a few investigative scientists over there to examine the beginnings of Corona, kind of what happened, how it started, what we can maybe do different next time. And they were hardly given any access to their records, speaking to people. It was a very monitored trip by them. Um, it makes me wonder why they would do that, but not going to make a point there. Um, that's a topic for a different day. So um, back to the the export or the import ban, and they're not going to import any more coal from Australia. Um, it caused coal prices, obviously, to shoot up because now it's kind of like during the blackouts uh, here in Texas, you know, we needed we needed energy. We couldn't get it, so whatever was left, it was really expensive. Um, and this caused 
literal boatloads of coal to be sitting in Chinese waters with really nowhere to go um, to sell their coal um, because they had, I'm sure they had contracts with, you know, energy providers in, in China and now they couldn't even, you know, drop it off and sell it. So people are just stuck on these ships. Um, and it makes me imagine that there would be, they would dump this supply somewhere else in the market that needs it, possibly India um, or even Russia. And it could even cause an oversupply. And I'm not, I'm not in the business of, of projecting coal prices. Um, but that'll be interesting to see. So these policies that Beijing is implementing are really protectionist in nature. And you could draw some corollaries to President Trump and his administration, how he was a protectionist at heart. He had U.S.'s interests at heart. China has China's interests interest at heart. And you can't blame anybody for doing that, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like you're really just looking out for your own country. Um, and because of that, I can see how this is kind of getting out of hand from China's point of view. Um, I'm not sure how long that ban will last, um, but the race is certainly on for China to provide other fuel sources that might be um, better for, for the environment. And, and all of this makes me wonder if China might be taking on too many fronts in the sense that they might be having trying to have a hand in so many different things to where they really can't focus on some things in particular. And obviously they have tons and tons of people, so I'm not necessarily worried about that. But just thinking through that, I mean, they have a new agreement with Iran that I spoke on earlier. They're going to import crude from them at a good price and all these things. Clear, obvious front page of the, of the papers cracks between the U.S. and China and their relationship, possible, you know, possible negative things could be happening in the future between our two countries, which is unfortunate. Um, you have China and Russia, uh, not Russia, uh, Russia, uh, excuse me, that's kind of funny. Maybe they should think about changing their country's name to that. Um, but China and Russia are in a pretty cozy relationship. But Russia, on the other hand, when you think of OPEC plus, when I say OPEC, I really mean OPEC plus, which includes Russia. They kind of lead that plus group. They're really central to OPEC policy. So you have cozy, cozy uh, China-Russia relationship, but Russia also has a big hand in OPEC policy. Throwback to April 2020, whenever that caused oil prices to go negative. So important relationship there. And then Saudi Arabia raising the cost of oil for Asian countries. Asian countries. So you kind of combine all of those two, or those, and that's just energy policy. Not even thinking about. You know, there's a semiconductor shortage, there's all these things, race for tech, a race for arms, all these things. Um, maybe too many fronts. I don't know. It'll be interesting, though. I mean, you have China pledged, um, you know, they're the, the world's biggest greenhouse gas polluter, pledged to go net zero, um, still dependent on coal. Um, we don't really think of China being dependent on coal, but that's one thing that they are dependent on. Um China actually imported 2.5 million tons of coal from Australia back in October 2020. And now that number is actually at zero, again, because of that band. I um, mean, could you imagine if this happened in the U.S.? I mean, it would be front page of every major news publication all over the world. I mean, just think about the Texas blackouts. I mean, cities, yes, were, were dark for a bit, but I mean, everyone was talking about it. And, it, and now there was questions about renewables versus traditional oil and gas. And there's a spot for both of them and we need both of them. Um, but it was everywhere. And I, I, I didn't even know this happened until I just looked online and, and was checking out some news about this. So I'm not hoping that China fails. Don't get, don't get me wrong. I'm not hoping that they 
you know, fail as a country or whatever you want to call it, um, or their policies fail. However, it's important to think through that climate change and the energy ESG front is not an even playing field. I mean, you have a massive push in some countries like the U.S., like all of the EU, like China in some ways, um, towards that future. And then you also have very little in others. You have poor countries with hardly any access to electricity. And I'd love to be able to utilize coal to light their cities and light their homes and be able to be able to read at night and those kinds of things. Um, and then you have rich countries like the U.S., like a China, EU, all of those, um, with tons of access. But now there's almost a moral obligation, a moral obligation to curb greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so something interesting to think about. That's all I have um, for today's show. It was a little bit longer, but I hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Jackson Roos. I will drop the links for the reference articles in the show notes, so check them out. I hope you have a great week. Stay safe, uh, and I'll see you next Sunday.